Open them up to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Revelation 21. Going all the way back to the beginning of our study in Revelation in chapter 1, you'll remember that the Lord told John to record, and he broke it down into three categories. First of all, the things that he saw. And in chapter 1, the thought, what he saw was the Lord Jesus in his glory. And in chapters 2 and 3, he was, he was told to write down the things that are. And that spoke of the church age and the, place, and the time in which even we find ourselves in now. And then he said to record the things that will take place after this time, after this time that we are in now. And I draw our attention back to that again because he said those things that will take place, not those things that might take place or perhaps will take place, but will take place. We spoke of the fact that the next several weeks and actually months we've been talking about that the tribulation that will be poured out, the wrath of God poured out on a Christ-rejecting world, that will take place regardless of what the world and, and the people in it think, that there's no accountability for them. They can continue to live their lives and, and will never have to answer for these, their, their actions. No, judgment will come. But we spoke last week that we have this amazing promise of what will also come, and that is the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus when he returns to this earth and reigns for a thousand years. And we spoke at the end of that time, Satan will be released from his captivity for a short time, but will be cast eternally into the lake of fire. Those things will take place, but here, and the reason I'm emphasizing this again, is in chapters 21 and 22, we move on to our final eternal destination. We're going to take a look at heaven. And again, this will take place. This is ahead for all of us as believers. John writes, Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. The new heaven and the new earth, John speaks of. The old heaven and the old earth, the earth which we inhabit now, and its atmosphere and the galaxies will be destroyed, will be completely done away with. The Bible tells us that, that, that the Lord in his hands, in him, all things consist, Colossians chapter 1 tells us. And, it, and it tell, it, this is going to happen when finally at that time he is going to let it all go. And it will be burned with a fervent heat, Peter tells us in 2, chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning. And the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise... We are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When God looked at his creation back in, in Genesis, it tells us that he looked at all that, it was, that he had created and he said it was very good. But the problem is that then man, when, it, when man rebelled against God and sin entered the world, the world, the earth that he created fell under the curse. And, and because of that, this world needs to be, it, is, it has been continually degrading ever since then and perishing and it will be destroyed. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 65, he said, For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. God prophesies this coming. And in here, I see many believe that, that, that God is just going to take the elements after it's all blown up and fire and melting away, take those elements and recreate the world. I believe in looking with Isaiah here that, that he will create a brand new world and a new heavens. He uses the same word here in Isaiah 65 that he used back in Genesis. God, God speaking in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word created there is the Hebrew word bara. It's the same word that God spoke and used through Isaiah in Isaiah 65, bara. And that means created from nothing. Created from nothing. God created all of this from nothing. I know that gives evolutionists uh, heartburn, but they're just going to have to get over it. Because that's what God did. From nothing, he created the heavens and the earth, and he will again create a new heavens and a new earth. Now, we notice that it's different right away. We're going to see a lot of things that are, that are different as we continue our study over the next couple of weeks. But first of all, right off in, first, in the first verse here, it says there's no longer any sea. Two-thirds of the earth right now is covered by oceans and seas. And, and it tells us here that there will no longer be any sea in this new world, this new earth that is created. Surfers, I don't know what to tell you. Um, there, there isn't going to be any sea. Now, that's one of the reasons I, I, I play golf. doesn't say anything about no golf courses there, so we're still good golfers, but surfers, there will be water. We're going to see that, but there won't be any seas. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So not only a new heaven and a new earth, here we see a new Jerusalem. And, and I love this again when I, when I, I place myself in this position and, and being in John's shoes as this is happening. God bless John as he's trying to, trying to describe for us the indescribable as he is seeing it. He's seeing this come down and he's trying to give us something that we can compare it to as a description. And he uses, like a bride adorned for her husband. You know, on the, on the wedding day, the, 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 the groom hasn't seen the bride, hasn't seen the dress, and she spends all morning getting, getting ready in her dress and getting her hair done and getting everything just perfect to present herself to her, to her groom. And, and the, the bride adorned for her husband speaks of purity. It speaks of absolute, breathtaking beauty. One of the, one of the pure joys that I have as being a pastor is the, the ability and the opportunity to officiate wedding ceremonies. And one in particular totally blessed me. One of my favorite moments that I've had as a pastor I, when, 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 when you're up front at a wedding as a pastor, one of the things you've got to try to do is keep the groom from fainting and, and uh, keep him, you know, kind of keep his mind occupied because what's happening for the most part at the beginning is as people are gathering, again, the bride is back there with, with her mom and all this other kind of stuff and all the other rest of the wedding party is out there. And so the groom and I are standing up in front, in front of a bunch of people that are doing just what you're doing, staring at us. So, so, you know, and trying to get his mind off of that and everything that's going, and they're always so nervous and everything. So I try to joke with them a little bit and just talk with them. But the, the, all of that changes, and everything stops when the bride comes in, right? Everybody's attention focuses there, but the number one person's attention that changes is the groom that's standing up front. Everybody else disappears. I'm gone. It's just, boom, there and his bride. 
And it's that, that moment that she turns around and comes around the corner, and this one in particular, that I, like I said, it's one of my favorite moments that I've had. I'm standing there next to him, a good friend of mine, I love this guy, and he's standing there, and all of a sudden he goes, oh, wow. I mean, it was just totally, his breath just taken right out of him when he saw his bride turn the corner to come down. And I was, oh, it was such a blessing to me. And I get that picture here that John's breath is taken away when he sees this. It's like, wow. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come back and take you to this place. This is the, the place that Jesus has gone to prepare for his bride, us, the church. And John is seeing this here. We get a physical description of it beginning in verse 9. But before we get there, I don't think that it's, that it's any, any random thing that John doesn't touch that until after he really focuses in on what really makes Heaven, heaven, what really makes this place so special, so different than everything else? It is who is there and what is not there. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. First of all, we see who is there. The Lord God Almighty is there. And not just visiting. He says that he dwells among the people. He makes his home there with his bride, with the church, with us. Guys, this is the key. This is the understanding this. It, it could be the most magnificent place you could ever imagine, beyond anything that you could ever imagine. But if Jesus isn't there, we don't want to be there. What makes heaven heaven, what makes this so amazing is that the Lord will be dwelling with us there forever. Also, notice what's not there. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying. Not only, not only will there be a new, new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, but hey, we're going to have new bodies <laughs> no more pain. Anybody else happy about that? <laughs> yeah. Yes. No more aches. No more pains. No more disease. No more, no more any of that. No more emotional scars. No more emotional suffering. No more relationship suffering. Back in our verse that we looked at, Isaiah 65, 17, it says at the end, the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. It tells us in our text that, that the Lord will wipe away every tear. Now that doesn't mean that we're going to be crying and he's going to be there saying they're there and wiping away our tears. No, that points to the Lord's comfort. And it will be that eternal comfort that we have, but we will not have a remembrance of the things that would bring us grief and sorrow. From our text in Isaiah, we see those things. People ask, well, what, what is, what's going to happen when I get there and my loved ones aren't there? I don't know exactly, but I, I can look to here and it'll say, that won't be a problem. That won't be something that will be brought to our remembrance. 
It's going to be perfect. The environment is going to be perfect. No more pain, no more suffering. Perfect. And and Paul, looking ahead to this, spoke of our current situation. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he says, The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. All the pain and suffering that we go through in this life is nothing compared to the glory that we will experience there. Isaiah, again, in Isaiah 65, he continues in verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, says the Lord. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. The Lord will be there. He will be, we will be rejoicing and he will be rejoicing with us. What a glorious thing. Verse five, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The Lord says, I am making all things new. All things new. Here we see the consummation, the coming together, the finished product, if you would, of the Lord's redemptive work. And when we see this, when he says he makes all things new, he's not saying, hey, we're going to put things back to the way they were in the good old days of Eden, when Adam and Eve were, were innocent. That's not what he's referring to. When God makes something new, it is really new. <laughs> We're, we're desensitized to that, that idea because when we go to the store and we look at products, it says new and improved all the time. But most of the time, it's neither new nor improved. It just has some packaging on it. They made a slight change to it, and now they're going to try to convince us now to rebuy their product in a different way. That's not what God's talking about. He's not talking about putting it back. I read a commentary this week, and one of the statements in it that really impacted me was this, speaking of, of this new thing, that, that making all things new. It says, we fail to realize that redeemed man is greater than innocent man. That we gain more in Jesus than we lost in Adam. God's perfect state is one of redemption not innocence. And when I, when I think of that, one of, again, those things that makes, makes heaven and, and being here with the Lord that is going to be so glorious for eternity is we are going to realize that we are not there because of our innocence. We are there because he redeemed us. Because he took the penalty for our sin. He paid the price for us making us far more valuable than if we were innocent in and of ourselves. Making all things new. I can imagine, again, John as he's seeing this and coming into this, this understanding and, and hearing the Lord say this. I, again, I can imagine this breathtaking thing and, and we're, we're probably unable to move. 
Because the Lord is, look, look here in verse five, he says, write. That's what he's supposed to be doing. So John, pick up the pen, close your jaw, get, 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 get a hold of yourself, write this down, because the point that I, you, you need to sit, record this for others. Write. It is done. It is done. I put this, these things together when I'm seeing this. He's making all things new. It is done. It is done. He has made all things new. This redemptive work, it is done because he did it all. When he hung on the cross, it is finished. It is done. And not only that, he goes on to explain it. It is done, he says, because I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. He is already there in eternity in the future. He exists outside of what we can comprehend in time. He says, I give to the one who thirsts from the water of life without cost. You know the story of Jesus when he met the woman at the well. And was speaking about getting some water and, and, and having this exchange, speaking of, of the physical water that is in the well that we all need in order to survive in our physical bodies now. But Jesus said this, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Many people try to create or try to find heaven on earth, and it's impossible. It can't be created. It can't be manufactured. It is a gift from God, and it is free. He's saying, all who come, just anyone who thirsts, come to me. And he who comes, and specifically as it says here, he who overcomes will inherit these things. I love that again because this is a promise. Will inherit these things. Everything we've already spoken of and all that we have yet to study as we go through this. Those who are believers in the Lord Jesus will inherit these things. He says those who overcome will inherit these things. And John tells us in 1 John chapter 5 that those who are born of God overcome. Who overcomes? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That it's, it's not a matter of us mustering up our strength and carrying, carrying the, the thing to the finish line. Jesus started it. We got to finish it. It has nothing to do with that. You surrender your life to the Lord Jesus. You trust in him and him alone for your salvation. You are an overcomer. Why? Because he overcame. And by placing our trust in him, we will inherit these things. We overcome the world. But, verse 8 says, for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In stark contrast to the glory of, of heaven and all that is there, here he is saying that those who are not there will be in the lake of fire eternally. Those are the only two options. There's not somewhere in the middle for those who don't quite make it either place. There is heaven and there is hell. 
And there is only one way to, to be in heaven, and that is to place your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus. And those who refuse to do that, he calls them cowards, unbelieving. And they will be cast forever into the eternal lake of fire. Those who don't overcome the world, but are overcome by sin, whose lifestyle is, is marked by sin, by, by murder, idolatry, Im sexual immorality, deception. But again, make, make no mistake about this. Again, as believers, this, this is not something that you qualify for. This is something that has nothing to do with qualification. It has everything to do with identification. Who we are in Christ. Because Paul told us in a couple of his letters don't, to remember the fact that we once walked as the world walked. We once were just like them, but by the grace of God that we no longer are. We see as we begin, continue our study, beginning in verse 9, a physical description of what John saw. Verse 9 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. The first thing again now when he's beginning the physical description, again points back to God, saying the thing that first catches him as this radiance that comes out is the glory of God from the city. The brilliance. Paul again, speaking of, of this, he, you know, again, this future home of ours. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, he says, nor has it even entered the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. I love that when I think of, of what, what Paul is saying there. That means that the very best that I could ever imagine for myself doesn't even come close to what God has prepared for me. That's a pretty amazing thing to behold. And again, now understand, as John is now trying to describe what it is that he's seeing, that this, this hasn't even entered the very, our very hearts as we continue beyond what we could imagine. Verse 12 it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And all the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Here we see, first of all, the discussion of the wall of the city. Now, this is not for fortification or defense. It's just a wall that goes around the city. And we're seeing, we see here in verse 17, we're going to see that it's the size of it is over 200 feet. It tells us that there are 12 gates. There are three on each of the four sides. We're going to see again as we continue our study later on the, today that they are, they are not pearly gates, they are gates of pearl. <laughs> They're not pearly. They are actually single pearls for each gate. Imagine the size. Pearls. 
It says the names of the tribes of Israel are on each one of them. The 12 tribes, the 12 names. And in that, continuing on throughout eternity, tying the church to the, in unity and heritage with the children of Israel. The foundation stones, and on them the names of the 12 apostles. Here giving eternal testimony to the apostles' testimony. That, that, they, that they were faithful when the Lord said, go and make disciples of all nations. Take my message out. And they were faithful. And the message of the apostles that they took out about faith in Christ has spread throughout the ages to us. Paul recorded again, Ephesians chapter 2, 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The testimony that they brought, again, of of salvation in Christ alone, and building on that foundation, Jesus being the cornerstone. On Christ, the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. He is the only foundation. He continues, verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod. 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurement which are also angelic measurements, just in case you were wondering. They use the same tape measure we do. Here we see the dimensions of this city. And it's laid out in a perfect cube. But notice, notice he gives us the 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles tall. To get an idea, that would stretch from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico. It would stretch from the East Coast to Colorado. That's just the, the, the length and the width. It also goes 1,500 miles up. That means if you were to get in an elevator in the lobby and travel at 100 miles an hour in an elevator, it would take you 15 hours to get to the penthouse. That's a big place. People, but by, by the way, if you happen to get one of those penthouse condos, I'm not helping you move your height a bed up there. <laughs> People often ask, though, when speaking of heaven in this, is there enough room for everyone? Well, I was having a little fun with the math myself. There's a lot of people that have done different calculations and putting it, illustrating it different ways. But I just thought I'd just figuring this out. If, let's just say the ground floor is a mile high. Because we're going to see there's a lot of stuff going on down in the ground floor. There's this really cool street we're going to see next week with a river flowing down it and trees on each side. We're going to get to that next week, so that's there. I can imagine the grandeur of this on the inside. We're just seeing the outside right now. But, so we're going to say the bottom floor is a mile high. That leaves 1,400 miles of building on top of that for, for residential space. Let's say the ceilings are 20-foot ceilings. That would mean that on top of this mile-high ground floor, we have 369,600 stories, each with 2,250,000 square miles of space. 
We're not going to have to, you know, like when you go to camp and you got to sleep like eight people in a room and rack them and stack them. It won't be like that. My point, though, in that is it's, this isn't about isolation. We're not going to have our own 10 square miles of space and leave me alone and, and all of that kind of stuff. We're not going to get to heaven and get our harp and go get our harp lesson and then go sit on a cloud somewhere all by ourselves. That has nothing to do with heaven. I, I say this strictly for illustration purposes, that there is room in heaven for everyone. And if you are here this morning and you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus for your salvation, there's room in heaven for you. Heaven is going to be an extremely social place. It's going to be awesome. The fellowship, it's going to be pure. It's going to be, it's going to be perfect. There's, it's not going to be tainted with sin and, and, and our, own, our own feelings about things and, our, and, and, and jealousies and all of that stuff. It's all going to be gone. It's going to be perfect fellowship with the people of God in the very presence of God. He goes on in the description in verse 18. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third shalandery, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardinx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. The thing is, we look at this that I, that I hope would become very obvious to us all, other than the fact I'm not a gemologist and I have no idea how to pronounce some of those gems. That should be obvious too. But that's not, that's not the point. What should be obvious to us all is not, as we look at this, the value of the city. Because that is enormous if you think of it. But the value that God places on us, that he would create this for us. Think of that for a moment. Every one of us in this room would be happy in a cardboard box in a corner in heaven somewhere. Yet this is what the Lord Jesus has gone to prepare for us. That is how special we are to him. That is how much we mean to him. That should blow us away. Amazing. Amazing. The floors are made of solid gold, so pure that you can see through them. Hey, what, these things, is again, John is trying to describe this in ways that we can somehow try to wrap our minds around. And again, it's beyond what we can. What we can. It should blow us away. I mean, the, the, the closest thing that we could even compare it to is if we were to sit down and, and design our perfect dream home 
everything that we've always thought that we wanted in a home and we design it and we, and we get it and then we, then, we, then we finally get to move in and there's that initial excitement that's like, wow, this is awesome. But then comes the fact that you need to have had window coverings and you got to do the backyard landscaping and then you got to deal with the homeowners association and then, and then you got to deal with the warranties as things are breaking and all of this other kind of stuff and, and we realize none of that's going to be here. It's going to be beyond what we could ever imagine, and we'll never have to deal with any issues, any problems. We're not going to have to deal with any subcontractors, nothing against you subcontractors, but we're not going to have to deal with you to fix stuff. God doesn't use subcontractors. Hebrews 11.10 tells us that the architect and the builder of this place is Almighty God himself. Wow. Verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates gates will never be closed." And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. It says there's no temple. There's, there's no place to go to worship because what we will be doing continually is worship. We are going to be in the Lord's presence continually. There's no need for a temple. The temple, when we look at this throughout the tabernacle initially and then the temple... It speaks of all of the things that were there, why it was built, and all of the utensils that were in it, and all of the sacrificial systems, and all of that stuff that went on. Paul tells us in Colossians that all of that, every bit of it, was a shadow, and Christ is the substance. It all pointed to him. And we are going to be in his very presence. We are going to have him. No need for a temple. He is the temple. No sun, no moon. He is the light. He is the source of everything. The constant source of light. Verse 27, and nothing unclean. Nothing unclean. No more sin. No more lying. No more deceptions. No more more self-righteousness. No one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is the only way to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. That is that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And again, if you are here this morning and you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus and him alone for your salvation, many have grown up in church and believe in Jesus but also believe that they need to somehow work the rest. Or, yeah, I understand this about Jesus and and I believe there's a God out there but have never surrendered your life to him. That is the only way to gain access here eternally. Without that, As I said earlier, the only other alternative is to face the wrath of God in hell forever. So if that is you here today, it is simply a matter of going before the Lord in your heart 
and, and, and praying along the lines and, and, and saying, I am a sinner. I, 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 I know that I can't earn my way. I need a savior. And Jesus, I believe that you're that savior. So I give you my life. If that is you this today, don't leave here today without speaking with me or one of the pastors or one of the people in the prayer room to pray and to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. Because again, it says, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will be here. But for those of us here today who are born again believers, this is exciting this is, this is awesome to know that this lies in our future. But if we just take this and, and kind of file this away as, as really cool, can't wait, put it on the shelf, we've missed part of the point. Paul records for us in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated. At the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. He said, we are to set our minds on the things above. We are to focus there. Not on the things that are around us. The world, the enemy, our flesh continually tries to get us to focus on the things that are around us. The pain, the suffering, the difficulties, the trials. And it's recorded for us many times in Scripture that we should not be affected by these things as we look ahead towards heaven. People have said, you're so heavenly minded you can't be any earthly good. You can't be any earthly good unless you're heavenly minded. We can't, we can't be used as effectively if we're focused on the situation here and all that's going on. These bodies, because of sin, are, are, are failing. People will, people will let us down. The, the, the government's going to let us down. That we're going to be disappointed if our focus is here. But if our focus is there, again, as Paul said, everything that we go through now, is, it can't even be compared to the glory that is there. Be encouraged with that. Regardless of where you find yourself, whatever struggle you are, it's temporary. Paul records again as we close last verse, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. It's temporary. We're not here for much longer. We will be there for eternity. Let's be used by him now. Amen? Lord.